Hi, this is Katie Maxwell. And I'm Lauren Paris. We're your hosts of Voices of the Earth, a Faith in Place podcast. We'll be exploring the intersection of spirituality, the environment, and justice. Faith in Place is a multi-faith environmental justice nonprofit based in Illinois, and we're on a mission to empower communities of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth, providing resources to educate, connect, and advocate for healthier communities. And we are also the proud affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light. Want to support our work? Please visit www.faithinplace.org donate. You can also find us on Instagram at Voices of Earth podcast and Twitter at Voices underscore of underscore Earth. Faith in Place is also on social at Faith in Place. Welcome to all our new listeners. Thanks for joining us at Voices of the Earth. We're so glad you chose to join us for our very first full episode of our brand new podcast. Absolutely, Lauren. I couldn't agree more. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking with Faith in Place Policy Director, Pastor Scott Onquay, and Policy Coordinator, Christina Krost, two people who have been working tirelessly to pass comprehensive clean energy legislation in Illinois. If you're just hearing about our advocacy for justice-focused climate policy in Illinois for the first time, you may not know that Faith in Place is a member of the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition. Together, we have been working to pass an equity-centered clean energy bill called the Clean Energy Jobs Act, or CESIA, since 2019 that builds upon the 2016 Future Energy Jobs Act. After two years of organizing, we were incredibly close to getting CESIA over the finish line by the end of Illinois' 2021 General Assembly session on May 31st. And while that was a huge disappointment, we continued to be at an impasse with labor, despite considerable efforts on our part to negotiate in good faith. And that brings us to today's topic, an article written by Mike Militich and published in Downstate News Outlet, WSILTV at the end of July, which was titled, We All Have Families. Hundreds Could Lose Jobs as Illinois Lawmakers Look to Close Coal Plants by 2035. We'll link to it in the show notes. The article, which took a critical look at energy legislation, Governor Pritzker and groups like the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition, decried the coalition's efforts to set closure dates for Illinois coal plants by 2035. They said, quote, we all have families. We want to leave a better world for our kids, said control room operator Matthew Roberts. But we also want to have a secure future and everybody uses electricity every single day. Roberts says taking away a large chunk of the electric grid could lead to many people without power, similar to blackouts in California and the disaster Texas faced last winter. Many like Roberts feel environmentalists pushing the bill don't care about the impact this could have on the workers. We know that's just a bunch of baloney. Environmentalists do care about the impacts that plant closures will have on families. In fact, ensuring a just transition for fossil fuel workers is a pillar of our policy platform. Pastor Anque will start off the episode today by chatting with me about where things stand at the State House and why equity provisions are so important for this bill. Then, Katie will sit down with Christina to hear more from her personal experiences about why having that kind of safety net is so important. We'll end with ways you can take action to ensure an equitable transition to 100% clean energy in Illinois. Hi, Pastor Anque. Thank you so much for joining us today on our new podcast. We're so glad to have you. And I am like extremely happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Absolutely. Um, so I guess we'll just dive right in. Uh, we want to know, after that disappointing finish to the legislative session on May 31st, our coalition, and especially you and Christina, have continued to work incredibly hard to center equity in the ongoing climate negotiations. Pastor Anque, I know that you've been a part of those negotiations. Can you tell us a bit 
about what that's been like for you? Sure. Uh, yes. Um, May 31st was extremely disappointing. Um, we made some concessions around closing um, fossil fuel plants with the timeline as well as uh, phasing out gas. Um, we also had some um, concessions in the area of prevailing wage and the workforce development part. And so when we did not get a bill passed on the 31st of May, um, Senator Harmon came out the next day and said that the uh, environmental group, along with labor, would work out two issues and we would soon have a bill passed. And so that's when the negotiations continued. Um, and we went to back to work with uh, labor to uh, see if we can come to some kind of consensus um, to get a clean energy uh, bill passed uh, in the legislative legislation session. So um, unfortunately, um, at certain points up to even today, uh, the negotiations have stalled. Uh, part of that is that we are really strong on equity. We really want an equitable bill passed. And we want to make sure that the BIPOC entrepreneurs are included in the process and can enjoy the fruit of the renewable energy uh, sector. And so some of that is making sure that the uh, BIPOC uh, entrepreneurs which tend to be smaller um, in numbers or actually smaller in workforce numbers uh, and make them be able to actually compete against the larger companies. And so we were thinking about things that would happen um, that would make that happen. So some of the thoughts we had around um, Justice Bank or Green Bank, where they could get low interest loans or grants to help them um, cover the cost of um, their workforce, especially if they would have to pay prevailing wage. Um, some of the thoughts we had were carve outs around the um, the level of kilowatts um, that a job would have to be in order to have to pay prevailing wage. And a lot of that was shut down by labor. And um, then also the end date for fossil fuels have tend to be a very uh, big sticking point. Um, our, um, I won't say our opposers, I would just say labor or those on the other side want um, fossil fuels to continue indefinitely. Um, so they've used terminology such as carbon capture, 90% uh, carbon capture, uh, getting to a point of um, planting trees to offset uh, the carbon release. Uh, and that's just not satisfactory to our coalition. And so right now, uh, as we go into this final stretch, um, we believe that uh, where we are today is closer than where we um, were maybe three weeks ago. And so hopefully something will happen. Can you expand a little bit more on the prevailing wage negotiations and explain how prevailing wage is an equity issue in this case? Sure. I, I touched on um, BIPOC businesses being uh, smaller um, in size than your typical um, big companies. And so a prevailing wage um, in Illinois could range from $60 to $82 an hour, depending on location, depending on the job type. And those wages would exclude um, BIPOC businesses from competing in the bidding process because they really could not afford to pay that kind of wage for um, the workers um, that they would tend to attract. And so it becomes an equity issue because if I'm not able to compete in the bidding process, that, that means I'm not able to do the jobs. And so I'm not able to expand my company in the commercial sector um, to benefit from all of the millions of dollars that will be unleashed in this whole uh, renewable sector. And so uh, typically a small BIPOC business has five or less employees. Um, they also have uh, employees that work with the 1099. And those kind of ways kind of uh, exclude them from uh, the process. Now, also another problem with the prevailing wage is when you uh, recruit um, individuals to be trained in this new uh, um, renewable energy sector, 
one of the things that our bill has talked about was establishing 13 uh, to 15 workforce hubs throughout the state that would, would train individuals in um, the solar industry. Now, that training typically could be 10 to 15 weeks, depending on the location. Uh, after that, um, some soft skill development and getting them prepared for um, the workforce. Well, it's pretty unrealistic that a company would pay a person coming straight out of training um, those kind of wages. And so that would mean that would mean that the individuals that are actually trained are not actually hireable. And so that means we trained individuals and they're un still unemployed, which causes a greater indictment on the process because those folks who are getting trained go in with the hope of getting, you know, some long-lasting, substantial employment to better themselves. Uh, this is about building wealth in our communities and really bringing people up um, to a level where they can be proud to go to work and take care of their families and not have to work two and three jobs in order to provide for their families. And so uh, that prevailing wage uh, pretty much excludes that new workforce uh, that's coming out of the workforce hubs. And so that's why it's an equity issue, because the BIPOC businesses that are trying to compete, who are most likely to hire um, black and brown people, because um, black and brown people tend to get hired by black and brown entrepreneurs um, will still, again, be excluded from actually being part of the process. And those bigger companies are probably going to look for more skilled labor, which would be available to them um, to hire those open positions. Right, right. Thank you. Um, that was wonderfully put. I think that that's a confusing topic for a lot of people, but that was a great way to, to frame it. Yes, and let me just add, because one of the misconceptions that is out there is that um, the environmental group does not want to pay black and brown people uh, prevailing wages, and that's just not the case. We would love to pay black and brown people uh, um, these prevailing wages if the process was equitable. And we know that uh, equitable does not mean equal. And so, again, we're trying to make sure as many people have jobs that are actually going to change their way of living as possible. And so, of course, when the uh, experience gets there and they're ready to go and compete for prevailing wage jobs, they'll be more ready because they've got the foundation um, that's necessary to compete on a larger scale. Absolutely. Isn't it similar um, to like a great analogy, I think, is teachers and how, you know, if you have a master's degree there, you get paid more. There's levels um, to pay, but it requires more experience, more education, um, and that can leave some people behind. Exactly. That's a good way of actually framing it, um, building that experience. Um, avails you to more opportunities. And so it's not like the teachers are saying they don't want to pay um, the greater wages, but they do pay on experience and education. And so that's a good way of putting it. All right. Thank you. Um, moving on and thinking about that WSIL TV article from a couple weeks ago, I know it got all of us environmentalists and advocates um, a little riled up because the conversation always seems to be about uh, fossil fuel workers and their jobs. But what I'm wondering is what about solar workers and the thousands of citizens employed in the clean energy sector? How many could face unemployment if we don't pass a bill? It's interesting you would uh, uh, bring that up. On just Monday, uh, I did a rally at uh, Senator Bennett's office, and I could have talked on many talking points, but my talking point largely was the 600 employees that are being employed at Prairie State and compared to the 3,000 employees that may lose their jobs immediately if we don't get a bill passed. The 600 employees at Prairie State still have a 20-year possible window of being employed as those jobs are phased out. And then they are still in position of being trained um, to go into the renewable sector. Because one of the great things about 
um, the bill that we put forth as well as the governor's bill was that we wanted to have what they call just transition. And just transition means that as you leave one uh, um, sector of employment, you will be readied and prepared to go into another uh, uh, sector of employee and, uh, employment. And that's where that prevailing wage you know, would have some emphasis because you're not stepping out of a, a good paying job and going to a, a, a lesser paying job. You're coming out of a good paying job into another good paying job. And so when they did that article, it, it kind of framed where the only people that were important was this community of folks at Prairie State that were going to lose their jobs. And no one's focusing on, um, right now, we have already passed the solar cliff. And so the solar industry is almost at a standstill. Can't hire new people. New projects are not uh, uh, available to get started. And so uh, in the state of Illinois, we're at a standstill in solar projects. Also, um, we were clear from the very beginning that we would need nuclear to sustain us as we transition into a 100% renewable uh, uh, community or industry. And um, there are um, two plants that are at risk of closing even right now. Um, Exelon has actually filed for paperwork uh, to close those plants without um, the necessary subsidies um, to keep those plants viable. And so um, in particular, uh, Byron um, uh, in Northwest uh, Illinois, 3,000 employees will probably lose their job um, before the end of the year. Uh, and so 3,000 people losing their jobs immediately compared to 600 who have a opportunity to be phased out of a job um, at Prairie State. And so that article just skewed things weighing more favorable to the 600 people that may lose their job in 20 years compared to all of the people that are uh, not working and, or about to lose their jobs because we can't uh, get a bill passed. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the biggest misconceptions because as frustrating as it is for us, a lot of people, a lot of communities do believe that they could lose their jobs if this bill is passed. But that's not the case because of this just transition. And that's a really important key part. If you could explain a just transition in the most digestible way possible for, um, you know, everyday people, how would you explain it? Well, the word just means fair. Um, and so it would be a fair transition into a new job. So we use the word just transition, um, short for justice. And we know that in order to move people to a new arena, to a uh, new area of work, there must be uh, some provisions put in place to make sure that those uh, people that are moving into this new arena would have opportunity to be trained um, they would be able to compete, uh, have comp competitive salaries offered to them. They would have also the necessary tools um, offered to them to make sure that they're successful. So when we think about just transition uh, during training. We're talking about childcare support. Um, we're talking about soft skill uh, um, support, helping people um, develop resumes and doing interview skills because someone could be on a job for 10, 15, 20 years and they haven't had to op, uh, interview for a new job. So we will take them through those training on how to interview for a new job. And then um, to make sure that they're supported while they're transitioning. So paying them during the training process so that they wouldn't be left out in the cold during their transition. So that's what just transition is all about. Just using that word just and thinking about what is the fairest process for people to transition out of one area into another area. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Ankwe. So one of my last questions is about workforce hubs. So workforce hubs were a key part of the 2016 Future Energy Jobs Act. Uh, you touched on this a bit, but can you explain more why we need workforce hubs in this new bill? So when we think about the workforce hubs, um, the plan for the Clean Energy Jobs Act was to develop um, 13 to 15 workforce hubs that would be strategically uh, placed throughout the state. 
in thinking about those workforce hubs, we thought, thought about communities like East St. Louis, Champaign, Peoria, um, West Side of Chicago, South Side of Chicago, Rockford, um, Quad City area, Springfield, uh, areas where we know that there are uh, uh, high densities of BIPOC communities, um, as well as those that will be transitioning out of fossil fuels. So when we think about um, those uh, uh, communities, um, they would be offered training um, by uh, people that are already in the industry. Uh, as they are offered the, this kind of training, the um, workforce hubs would also be training entrepreneurs to become entrepreneurs in this renewable energy or the solar industry. So um, the workforce hubs will have a dual purpose, train prospective employees, as well as train uh, future entrepreneurs um, to capitalize on the work. Now, the future entrepreneurs would typically be construction companies that would like to get into the um, solar sector or um, electric companies, those that are in uh, electricians. Um, they would be a good candidate for entrepreneurship opportunities through the workforce hubs. And so $200 million was allocated each year uh, in the bill just for the development of the workforce hubs. Inside the workforce hubs, we also planted the uh, equitable provisions or the equity provisions in there, such as the Green Bank, the, Just, the Justice Bank, where uh, entrepreneurs could uh, apply for uh, on no interest loans or grants um, to help them get started in, in the renewable solar uh, uh, industry. And then uh, the, again, we talked about this in the previous question, but it's good to emphasize that uh, these workforce hubs will offer the wraparound services that are absolutely necessary for individuals to be successful as they enter into this new workforce. Again, childcare, um, do they need uh, suits and tools? Uh, do they need books? What, what are the things that are necessary that's going to provide them with a successful outcome? So we thought about all of those things and many people sat around and, and, and used their brain power to think about what would each uh, person coming into this new arena would need. So we thought about what women would need. We thought about uh, uh, um, uh, how important for a woman is to make sure that child care is, in, uh, is provided for if they want to uh, enter into this workforce. Because the BIPOC community is Black, Indigenous, people of color, but it's also inclusive of, uh, uh, of uh, women, uh, um, uh, um, uh, any other community that has been marginalized or disenfranchised, um, communities that have been largely affected because of climate change, because we know that the BIPOC community is the first to be affected by climate change and the most and has the most impact. Climate has the most impact on those communities. So we are thinking of all the things we can do uh, in those workforce hubs to make sure that people have a successful outcome. I definitely think the key word with this bill is comprehensive. It's not just a climate bill. It's an equity bill, it's full circle. It's showing the interconnectedness of jobs, equity, the environment, um, so many different issues all combined into one bill. So I think that's also important to highlight for people who might not know the background and might just think that this is a regular old environmental bill. Um, it's much more complex than that. Absolutely. When we, when the concept of seizure, you know, we started out with uh, listen, lead and share sessions. Um, those listen, lead and share sessions were just that. We listened um, as uh, um, we, we led the conversation, but we allowed people to share what they would like to see in a comprehensive, clean energy um, bill that included jobs that included electrification of vehicles, that included um, transition out of fossil fuels as we phase that out, that included um, getting on the pound of 100% renewable. We set a date of 2050, and many would say that may have be an aggressive date, but it's actually not. When we think about our federal legislation, um, uh, President Biden 
his uh, uh, legislation has clearly stated that he wanted fossil fuels to be phased out by 2035. And so that was our, our, our number there. And he's sticking to it. So if a bill uh, such as uh, a revised Clean Energy Jobs Act or a climate bill or a, the governor's version of a climate bill would clearly put us on the path to be the leader in the country when it comes to states creating clean energy equitable legislation. Great. Thank you so much, Pastor Anque. So things are rapidly changing in the legislative landscape. Um, we've had a lot of traction lately with the Senator Bennett rally last week in Champaign, and then another action at the state fair. And I'm sure there are many upcoming actions as well. Um, can you tell us what's coming up next in terms of getting this legislation passed? Sure. Uh, yes, I participated uh, last week in the Senator Bennett action. I participated in the Springfield uh, action to support the governor's version of the clean uh, um, bill, climate bill. And this coming week uh, on Thursday, the 26th at 5 p.m., we have a clergy action. And so we've invited clergy, uh, um, does, not does not matter about your denomination, uh, houses of worship throughout the state to be a part of a clergy action where we'll hear from uh, Dr. Otis Moss, uh, the pastor of the Trinity uh, 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 United Church of Christ. Uh, also, we will hear from Dr. Ira Carruthers, who is a key figure and founder of the Samuel Proctor Foundation, as well as some other key voices around um, the legislation and why this legislation is so absolutely important for the faith community. And so that's going to take place, and I'm going to lead the conversation uh, around this, and we're looking forward uh, to hundreds of clergy people to be on uh, uh, our webinar at 5 p.m. on August the 26th. You can go to the Action Fund web webpage for uh, Faith in Place and sign up there. Um, or look for us on our Facebook uh, uh, page and uh, sign up on that page. But the most important thing is if you are clergy and you're hearing me on this podcast that you participate next Thursday on the 26th. And then uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed and our prayers going up because um, we may be back in a, me, a legislative session uh, at the end of the month. And so uh, I'm looking forward to being down in Springfield on. Uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as we close out the month uh, on the 29th, the 30th, and the 31st of August. And hopefully if the Senate and House are reconvened, it'll be reconvening to pass a clean climate bill that focuses on equity and that focuses on the end to fossil fuel. Thank you so much, Pastor Anque, for joining us today and sharing all of your experience and expertise. Uh, we greatly appreciate it and hope to see this bill passed. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, Christina. You're one of our first guests on our brand new podcast, and we are thrilled that you could join us. Thanks for having me. Before we start, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. So I am the policy coordinator for Faith in Place. I started with Faith in Place in March of 2015. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with uh, being a new mom and trying to kind of square my um, faith life with my desire to be more sustainable. And also because we were a young uh, couple that didn't have a whole lot of money or time. And so being more sustainable was cheaper and, you know, was better for our budget. So that's kind of where I came to this work from. And a lot of it, you know, has to do with, you know, my family. That's really awesome. I think that's such a relatable story for whether you're a mom or you're just kind of starting out in your career, kind of like where I am and have been for the past couple of years and being more sustainable can save us a lot of money. And it's, it's cool that that's what brought you into this work. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your faith background too? Sure. So I was raised uh, in a Catholic household and went through K through 12 Catholic education. 
Uh, but then went away to college and met uh, my husband there. And the school was a United Methodist affiliated school. Um, and he was raised United Methodist. And so we kind of started, you know, what you, you hear these days, people talk about like deconstructing their faith and, you know, building something that they can, you know, really live or live with, you know, build, building something that they can, uh, you know, really dig into and, and, and get their heads around and their arms around. And um, so these days uh, we attend a United Methodist Church. My husband is United Methodist clergy. So um, that, that strong faith background growing up, you know, has really led to us putting that faith into action just in a different denomination. Mm-hmm. And how do you put your faith into action with your climate work? So uh, being a policy coordinator, I try to help, you know, um, communicate well to people of faith that it's important to care for creation as a spiritual discipline, but we also have to take the next step in caring for creation uh, by advocating for policies that not only help creation, but help the people uh, living in that creation too. And that often translates into social justice related to you know, race and, and economics. And so we have to see how those things all work together. So being good stewards, but also making sure that corporations aren't harming workers or harming the planet, speaking up just as strongly on that um, as recycling. Those, those things need to be hand in hand and part of our faith journey. Yeah, and I love that you talked about communicating clearly because I think that starts to get at the heart of why we wanted to bring you on the show today. The opposition has been publishing a lot of misleading information in the press and in direct mailings, especially in downstate Illinois, which is where you live. And the efforts to transition Illinois away from fossil fuels um, and toward clean energy are things that the fossil fuel industry is not interested in working toward because it means moving away from the status quo in a lot of ways. And so those advocates have been publishing that kind of misleading information, including um, the WSIL TV article where employees at the Prairie State Energy Campus were bemoaning the fact that they have families and they've planned to work their entire careers at Prairie State. Um, if you ask me, assuming you'll work at the same company your entire life in today's economy is just simply unrealistic. And I'm really interested in hearing from you, Christina, about your perspective on that article. I think you were the one who shared that article. Yeah, so not one of the few staff who has young children still in the home. Um, and so when I hear the kind of rhetoric around, you know, we have families save our jobs, it takes me right back to 2008 and 2009, uh, where my very young family uh, was living in the Detroit suburbs. That's where I grew up and we were living that, you know, living there, um, you know, we wanted to be able to raise our kids near family. And um, so that was kind of a choice that we made. So we moved there in about 2005. So, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, if you were paying attention to politics and economics then, that was right about when GM was having their major financial crisis. And, you know, if you know anything about Detroit, Detroit is, you know, heavily reliant on the automotive industry, have not diversified their economy, or at least at that point they hadn't. And so, you know, here we were living in the suburbs, doing everything right, I use in air quotes. You know, we had college degrees, we were working full time, uh, we had one daughter and we had a second one on the way. And so during that time, my husband lost his job. He was working for an automotive supplier. And, you know, as you, imagine when GM is not paying their bills, you know, it trickles down to all the little mom and pop suppliers of, you know, these different automotive facilities, that they can't pay their workers either. And so, you know, my husband lost his job in 2009. And, you know, after a series of unfortunate events, um, you know, we lost a house. I watched my neighborhood clear out overnight, people moving and selling their houses or losing their houses and getting out as quick as they could to seek, you know, work elsewhere. There was no safety net for my family at that time. 
And there was no opportunity for a just transition. There was no job retraining. Um, there was no transition plan for my family. And so I know the deep terror that someone looking at um, an industry leaving the economy of their neighborhood, their community, I understand what that looks like. I lived through it. But what we're attempting to do in a clean energy economy is not that. <laughs> it is to have a plan for job retraining for families that are, you know, have you know, have to put food on the table and, you know, have, have bills to pay, but it's a plan for them to get into new industries. And, you know, frankly, this was this kind of legislation that has a just transition really would have been useful to my family, you know, in 2008 and 2009, uh, as it was, my husband decided to go back to school uh, and he went into ministry at that point. And that's a whole nother story about how we got to, the, to that particular job. Um, but, you know, it was something we saw him wanting to do maybe more long-term and it just was something we accelerated on our, on our side. But, you know, that's student loans that we're still paying. You know, I was getting a master's degree at that point. I was in education at the time. And, you know, we have student loans that we are still paying on, you know, during that financial crisis where we needed a new job, we needed a new, you know, a new path for our family. So again, no transition plan for my family you know, during that time, we had to, you know, rely on our families to help us out, rely on, you know, loans to get through school. And, you know, it just reminds me, nobody wants to worry about things changing. Um, but it's just not, you know, realistic that the that our world isn't going to change. For example, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that like the average worker will have, I think it's 10 different jobs before the age of 40. And that's predicted to, of course, increase, you know, as our children come into the workforce. So that might be more like 12 to 15 jobs for our youngest workers. And, you know, just an idea that a job that's always there and never changes is just not the world we live in. And some of us grew up in that world. You know, my, um, my father's father was a first generation immigrant from Italy came to the United States, worked on the line at Ford his entire life. He had five brothers. They all worked on the line at Ford their entire careers, had 260 years of seniority between the six of them when they all finally retired. That's just not the reality uh, of our world anymore. And I wish that it were, but it's not. And so you see schools kind of shifting to a skill-based um, you know, focus rather than a job-based focus, because we want to equip our, you know, our students with skills that will translate across many different, you know, industries, not just one particular industry. You know, that is a thing I see happening in the future that is good and, and is important, um, you know, as we look forward to what the world looks like. Thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your story. There's a lot of richness in in what you just shared and I feel a lot of gratitude to you for talking with us about that because what I'm hearing in your story are, are several different things. One is the disintegration of communities as people are moving away and, and trying to uh, find better job opportunities. Yeah. I mean we we all have families to support. You know, whether you're in the fossil fuel industry or, you know, even, you know, our solar workers in this state right now who have maybe already made a transition, probably at their own expense to go through school and get the training that they need to, you know, they're out of jobs right now as well because, you know, the state has really just, you know, fallen off what's called the solar cliff where there's not funding for the, the solar projects that lead to jobs. And so, this, this, you know, idea of, you know, I need to support my family is certainly not unique to the fossil fuel industry. Um, we've got it going on all over the place. There are nuclear workers in the state who are about to lose jobs as well, because again, the energy bill is being held up and there's not um, a way for them to continue in their industries without some funding to help them stay afloat. You know, when I, when I read about communities in crisis like this in the fossil fuel, you know, economy, 
I think about all the other families too that are really being affected when we just focus on, you know, coal. Everybody is needing to look at a just transition. And, you know, we have a plan. The state has a plan um, through the governor's under, you know, energy and equity bill. And we need that yesterday. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And can you say a little bit more about what just transition means to you, as well as what that looks like in this energy bill that we're working so hard to pass? Sure. So, I mean, a just transition for me means a family who is being pushed out of, you know, let's say a coal plant or a coal mining job would have a safety net for a period of time as they seek out training and new employment opportunities in a new industry. That could be renewable energy. Um, so learning about solar, learning about wind, maybe even learning about electric vehicles, how to repair them, how to install some of the charging infrastructure that we're going to need very widely across this state and many others uh, as we go forward. So there's all kinds of industries that people you know, could be getting into but being able to have that safety net so that they can seek out that training, you know, for a period of time is really critical. The other piece of that is like some business incubator um, opportunities as well. So if you wanted to start a solar business or you wanted to start some other kind of business related to the green energy economy, um, there'll be places located throughout the state, typically located in these communities that are going to be experiencing a transition. So where coal plants or coal mines currently exist, they'll be able to get this job retraining and these business incubator resources to get that idea, that business. So that's more for individuals, but on the community level, you know, a community that is looking at losing a major employer in town, you know, if I were someone like a mayor or elected to a, you know, county seat or, or some such, you know, elected body, I'm worried about how am I going to pay for my police officers and my schools and things like that. And as someone who's lived in a town um, that nearly had its school district completely imploded, uh, a fossil fuel plant refusing to pay its, its tax burden, I understand what, you know, what that looks like. It's a real concern. So, you know, for communities, as we justly transition, there would be the ability, instead of a coal plant or a coal mine up and closing overnight and leaving everyone stranded, there would be a transition plan required by these corporations so that no one is being left behind overnight. So there's a plan so that the city council or the mayor or whomever can look at a timeline and say, we've got this many years to get people transitioned into other jobs to figure out how we're going to pay for the, you know, the different things that we need to pay for, you know, as a city and give people time to, to make that transition rather than having to make a decision, you know, in haste. Because as we know, we don't make really good decisions uh, for lots of people that affect lots of people uh, when we do it quickly. So this would provide some tax replacement, those cities, as they look at that transition time. Having a plan, having a decarbonization target where we know, oh, well, all the coal plants need to be offline by this time. So we need to find other sources you know, of income for our city and other jobs for our residents gives people time. So again, you've got a just transition, meaning getting some training for workers and enabling them to find new industry on a reasonable schedule, on a timetable, and the same for communities. Yeah, I love that idea of a plan. I'm a planner myself, so I think having a clearly laid out way of knowing for a community that you're going to not just leave people high and dry, communities that are dependent on fossil fuel as their primary source of um, industry and, and what that means for the tax base. And also what I'm hearing you say, Christina, is that a just transition plan is an abundance mindset. It's an opportunity to think beyond where we've been uh, before and to think about how we can, as communities, build stronger communities, build communities that are 
healthier and safer because they are not spewing uh, chemicals into the air that our children are breathing and then developing lung conditions like asthma. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it was just getting me to think like when I hear um, or read articles about fossil fuel workers being upset that they have to transition, I feel compassion uh, because my faith Mm -hmm. calls me to listen and to be compassionate, you know, before I judge, before I, you know, make, you know, make it, make an assessment of that. But the second thing I feel is maybe anger. Um, because I have a daughter who has asthma. And so, you know, as I hear families talking about being afraid of the transition and what it will do for their families, I'm driving my kid around to experts and different doctors and increasing her medication because of the wildfires out West, um, making it difficult for her to breathe. And so when they say, well, we have families too, well, my family has the right to breathe clean air and drink clean up clean water as well. And so like this idea that one of the members of the body is more important than the other is definitely at odds with how I feel as a person of faith and that there's got to be a way (laughs) that we can work together here to make sure that everyone can feed their families and we're not destroying the environment to do it. There's got to be a better way. So we can work on that together because just, you know, a worker has a right to be able to provide for their family, but my kids have a right to be able to be healthy, you know, and whole as well. So we've got to find a way to work together on that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think one way that we do that is um, by increasing the amount of renewable energy that we have. And a lot of that looks like distributed energy so that it's not just centralized at one power plant, but there are solar arrays on buildings, on homeowners, houses. Um, But there's also a fear of what that distributed generation could do to the grid. And I'm curious if you could talk with us a little bit about fear that people have. It's, you know, one of several fears that come up in this article. And the interviewee that I mentioned at the top, Roberts, he said in that article that closing Prairie State could result in massive power blackouts, like those experienced in California during the summer's extreme heat and the wildfires, and also in Texas during February's blizzard. But what makes that unlikely to happen in Illinois? So, you know, people who think that renewable energy is just not possible or that it needs to be on a much slower timeline. Fail to understand how our grid actually works in the state of Illinois. So California has got a whole different thing going on. Texas has a really different thing going on. Pretty um, stable grid where we are. So if we uh, in Illinois, need more power, we can get it from other places um, because we are interconnected to a grid that covers the entire Midwest. Should there be a increased need for energy, we can buy energy from surrounding states and areas um, to help cover that load that we need. Now, does that mean that it's clean energy? No. <laughs> does that mean your, your uh, energy bills might go up? it's possible. But the odds that we would be without power for an extended period of time, like Texas, like California, um, it's just not like that in Illinois. And increasing the different um, renewable energy sources only helps make our grid more reliable. Because when you're Mm. getting your energy from more than just one place, more than one coal plant, more than a few coal plants, when you can get your energy from wind and solar in addition to some baseload methods, it makes your grid more resilient. So part of the issue in Texas, people kind of said, well, look at the windmills, they froze. So it's all the windmills fault. Not true. If they had actually had more windmills, they would have been able uh, to spread out the energy needs a little bit better than you know having one or two go out. The other thing about Texas is that they are they have their own grid. They don't like uh, 
other people to come in and tell them they have to do certain things. Uh, they have certain regulations, so they made their own. So they're not interconnected to another grid. Typically, Texas can create and consume the right amount of energy for the you know particular experience that they're having, whether it be winter or summer there. Again, as we look at the climate changing across the United States and the world, um, the plans that they have in place that we can always have the right amount of energy simply is just not the case. And so diversifying the grid um, is really the answer there. So that when one thing goes offline, you still have other things in the mix to help with that load. Again, I feel like the conversation keeps coming back to, Christina, this idea of an abundance mindset, having a diversity of options, that the more interconnected we are to one another, the better off we'll be, the more able we'll be to withstand some of these quote unquote storms, whether the economic changes that we see, the fluctuations, um, and, and our ability to ultimately be resilient, really. I think that's what we're, what we're talking about at the end of the day. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts about resiliency. You know, I think, um, you know, as we, you know, as, as a mom raising kids through COVID, uh, through, you know, my family moves as my husband is an itinerant pastor. So we move where our bishop asks us to move when our bishop asks us to move. And it's not always when we want to or where we want to, but that's how we serve. You know, I think resilience is a word that I use a lot um, in my family. And so, you know, as you're talking about, you know, embracing more of an abundance mindset, I think, you know, I, I think about a resilience mindset too. Uh, that we have to understand that we're going to face challenges. We're going to face challenges that our parents didn't face and their parents didn't face. But if we come at it with some bravery and if we come at it from a sense that we have done hard things before and we can continue to do hard things, if we're looking toward the future, if we have some plans, if we can do some scenario planning, you know, we can come at this from a sense of resilience and growth rather than, um, you know, thinking of deficit. Um, and I just think that that as a person of faith is really important to me, um, that mm. I can't always control what's going on around me, but I can control my response and I can control, you know, at least modeling for my kids, you know, what that looks like to be a person of faith, to be a person of resilience. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And as a person of faith, Christina, you talk about not having control all of the time. And uh, you also talk about the importance of taking care of people in your community. So I'm curious, what do you think people of faith like you, like our listeners, can do to combat um, some of this misinformation, but also what can we do to take action, to speak out for this resilience mindset and to be brave? I kind of, you know, if you spend any time on Twitter, um, which if you don't, you're not missing a lot, but um, you you start to see binary thinking here, um, especially as it relates to the climate crisis. It's all personal change or it's all corporations that have, you know, screwed up the planet and it's one or the other and it's not both. And I tend to approach this from a both and perspective. So there are absolutely things that I can do personally in my home that can help mitigate my effect on the climate, because that is my community, that is the air I am breathing and the water I am drinking. So, you know, immediately in my own community, there are things that I can do, they're in my control, do the best I can to be a good neighbor. You know, sometimes people get really hung up on recycling and we've had, you know, all kinds of different education out there uh, through Faith and Place about why maybe that's not the only thing that we need to be focused on. It also means, you know, supporting corporations that are more sustainable 
for lots in lots of different ways, you know, as it relates to labor practices, as it relates to you know, actual climate mitigation. Like there's there's a lot of things I can do as a person to try to strengthen my community by treading a little bit more lightly on the planet. But there is also, here's the and part to the both and, you know, absolutely corporations have tried to make it sound like people are responsible for fixing the climate mess. And that's simply not true. We need to make sure the polluters um, have some responsibility here in cleaning up the environment. And we are going to call on our elected officials to hold those corporations accountable. So there, there's that both and, you know, both personal change and systemic change. So what that looks like to me is you know, doing all of the personal change things I can and teaching my children about that, but then also making sure that I have my legislators' emails and phone numbers plugged into my phone and I call their offices regularly. They are hearing from me regularly that you know this particular issue is happening in my community. You are my elected official. What are you going to do about XYZ? I happen to live in an area of Illinois where I differ greatly ideologically from the person who represents me uh, in my state level and at the federal level. Um, so that just means I need to even be more noisy about, you know, as a constituent, what I want from them, the votes that I want them to take, the things that I want them to care about. And I'm not always going to change their mind. But every time I call, every time I email, someone in that office has to log it. And it, there's a record being kept that this many people on this day called about this thing. Um, and it gets their attention when there's more than just one or two. Um, so it's also my job to try to get other people of faith um, doing the same thing because collectively, we have power. Um, both and personal change and systemic change is what I think is most important. Absolutely. And I think we, you know, at Faith in Place, we also have a petition that you can sign. So you can go to our website and look up climate justice. And there is a petition there that uh, is available for folks to fill out. And it just takes a minute, um, but it's so important as you're saying, Christina, to show our legislators whether they're ideologically opposed, like the one who represents you, or incredibly aligned, like the uh, legislators who represent me here in Chicago, to let them know that I'm watching, that we as a community of faith and spirituality are watching, and we're going to hold them accountable to what they do and how they vote uh, in the state house so that we make sure that they know we care about the climate and that we don't just care about um, the butterflies and the polar bears, but we care about how this is directly affecting our communities, our families. And I think you did such a wonderful job, Christina, of telling us about how this has impacted your family. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you giving us that time. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a creation of Faith in Place, a multi-faith environmental justice nonprofit based in Illinois. We are the proud affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light, and we are on a mission to empower Illinois people of all faiths to be leaders in caring for the earth, providing resources to educate, connect, and advocate for healthier communities. This week's episode was produced by Katie Maxwell. Your hosts are Katie Maxwell and Lauren Paris. Our theme song is Sweet Talk by Tyra Chatney. Our guests were Pastor Scott Onquay and Christina Crows from our policy team. Check out our show notes for the link to sign our climate justice petition. It takes only a minute to fill out and makes a huge difference. We need everyone, and we really mean everyone, your mother, your siblings, your neighbors, and people in your faith community 
to tell our legislators to pass comprehensive clean energy legislation now. To register for the upcoming Clergy Climate Action at 5 p.m. on Thursday, August 26th, go to our sister organization, Faith in Place Action Fund, to register. Please rate, review, or share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you enjoy this podcast, please support the work of Faith in Place by donating. Please go to faithinplace.org forward slash donate. Your support means we can empower more youth, engage more green teams, and advocate for better climate policies that put people and the planet first. And please follow our social media pages on Twitter at voices underscore of underscore earth and on Instagram at voices of earth podcast. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.